Good morning. I want to add my welcome to you. There's a, a guy, maybe you've heard of him, named Tom Brady. Where's the number 12? He plays football. Uh, he's been doing it forever. And um, Tom Brady's in his 40s, and I think he's like 40 right now. But 13 years ago, when he was 27, uh, he had already won three Super Bowls, which is pretty crazy. And back in 2005, 60 Minutes uh, did a feature on Tom Brady, and they, they highlighted his wealth, millions of dollars he had made, his incredible success, three Super Bowls at his young age. And um, in that interview, there's this point, after highlighting all of that aspect of his life, there's this point where Tom Brady says very candidly to the interviewer, there's times when I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's got to be something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? And the interviewer said, what's the answer? And Brady just looked at him and said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. 13 years later, uh, Tom seems to have settled on football is the answer. He just did a series of episodes called Tom versus Time, and uh, they highlight his mentality, his physical conditioning, his diet, and one of the episodes is Tom and spirituality. And in it, he says, football is my religion. I've found it. This is where I find purpose and meaning. We have a common mission. I have something to wake up for in the morning and go to work on every day. There's nothing like it. This is where I find meaning. 13 years later, several more Super Bowls later, that's where Tom is finding meaning. What would you tell him if you had the chance to sit down and he's asking that question? Is this all it's cracked up to be? How would you answer that? How would you answer that by not just what you would say to him, but by how you're living right now? What, what are you living for today? What are you here for? Uh, do you ever get sick of the, the rat race, or maybe you're like me and you can relate? So, sometimes I just forget the, the plot in life. You can just kind of get bogged down in the day to day, the mundane, the routine, and forget there is actually a glorious purpose in life. I mean, I'm in Christ by faith. I have God's word and I believe it and he has revealed it to me and yet it's easy to just lose track of that and kind of fall into that tedious, just average. But there is a plot and there is an author and this world is the stage and a glorious story is unfolding in it. And you're in it and I'm in it. So do you know your part in the, the unfolding story of God's glory? Do you know your cues? Do you know your lines? I want to turn together this morning to Genesis chapter 46 and 47, and I want God's word to remind us and renew us and refocus us that we would be captivated, that our hearts would be captured by the plot of God's glorious story. 
We're going to be looking at Genesis 46, 28 through 47, 31, but I'm, I'm going to start reading in chapter 47, verse 1. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen in front of you. Genesis 47, verse 1. This is God's holy word. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Jumping down to verse 25. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. 
And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Let's pray. Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Nourish us, feed us, strengthen our souls with your word. Give us food that this world knows not of. Where else would we go? Oh God, you have the words of eternal life and we receive them with faith, eager to believe and to do all that you say to us here as you work in us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, be a fair question. What does this text have to do with the purpose of my life? What does this text, this narrative about events that unfolded three and a half thousand years ago on the other side of the globe have to do with the meaning and the purpose and the aim of your life today in 2018 in Sioux Falls, South Dakota? How is this text relevant to us? What does it have to do with us? Well, it has everything to do with us, and here's, here's why. It hints at the fulfillment of God's purpose for all humanity. And we're humans, so we're in that. God's purpose for all humanity. This text assures us that there is, in fact, a glorious, God-given purpose for our lives, and it is God's good pleasure to see that his purpose for human beings is accomplished. But if you didn't see that in the text, here's... Here's what you need to see. In order to feel the weight and the glory of this narrative, we have to understand it in the context of the the entire book of Genesis, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, because if you're reading through Genesis beginning in chapter 1 and you get to this point, this is an incredible climax to the story. Otherwise, it's kind of like jumping into a, a serial TV show, you know, somewhere in season three, episode 10, and you're just not, you don't know the characters, you haven't seen it all develop. So, Back to the beginning. In the beginning, God made humans to, here's the purpose for human beings, to fill the earth with his image, with the image of his glory, and to represent his rule and reign on earth by exercising dominion over the earth under God. That was his created purpose. Look at Genesis 1:28, when God gives this very specific mandate to Adam and Eve, the very first human beings, and God blessed them. Genesis 1:28, God blessed them, and God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth." This is often called the cultural mandate. Notice there are three parts to this commission. First, there's a blessing from God. This is not a burdensome assignment that God has given to human beings. It's a blessing. It's a gift. I think we're often used to thinking of assignments as burdens. Maybe school has something to do with that. Maybe work has something to do with that. You're given an assignment and it just weighs on you. This is a blessing from God to human beings. Second, humans are called to fill the earth all the earth. There were just two at the beginning in the garden that God made, but they were told, fill it, be fruitful, and multiply. 
But not just fill it for the sake of taking up space. Fill it and have dominion over it. Subdue it. Exercise representative rule over the world under God's authority. So Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, are commissioned by God to fill the earth with God's glory by ruling the world under God's authority. One author says, dominion is man's responsibility to subdue the earth for God's glory. Now, you know the story, Adam failed, he plunges the world into rebellion and sin and chaos and death, but here's the the key thing in Genesis. God's purpose for humanity didn't change after the fall. That's what we see in Genesis 9, 1, and 7. After the flood, Noah and his sons come off the ark, and look at what God says to Noah. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. The exact same language from Genesis 1, 28. That's, that's crucial because it shows us God doesn't lift this purpose for humanity after the fall and say, now that they're in sin, never mind, we'll scrap that. In fact, as Genesis unfolds, God's purpose focuses, God focuses that commission in one family when he chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Look at his words to Abraham in Genesis twenty-two seventeen: I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. That is language of subduing and having dominion, possessing the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God still has a global purpose for the world to be filled with people who bear his image and represent his rule and reign. And he now is taking the initiative to Abraham to say, I'm going to make it happen. Because now it has the language, not just of a a command, a commission, but a promise. I will bless you. I will multiply you. I will make you great. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it's passed down to Isaac and it's passed down to Jacob. Genesis 35, 11, God said to Jacob, I am God almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation, and a company of nations. That's fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply kind of language shall come from you and kings. That's language of have dominion, subdue it. Kings shall come from your own body. And for the sake of time, I've skipped over five or six other references in Genesis that repeat the same language. In fact, one scholar says that Line, Genesis 128, is the most frequently repeated theme from the beginning of the Bible throughout the entire Old Testament. Next time you're reading the Old Testament, just listen for language that sounds like be fruitful, multiply, increase, have dominion, rule over, fill the earth. It's everywhere in the unfolding of God's story. So then we can grasp the magnitude of what happens in Genesis 46 and 47. God's original purpose for humanity And his particular promises and blessings to Abraham began to be fulfilled in Joseph. Through Joseph, Jacob's family was blessed by God. That's how it always begins. And God blessed them. And God blesses Joseph and his brothers and all the family of Jacob as they arrive in Egypt. That's what's 
made evident by their arrival specifically in the land of Goshen, which the text tells us is the best of the land of Egypt. This was the land that Joseph had picked out for his brothers during their second trip to Egypt. He told them, come back, go get dad, and I'm going to put you in Goshen. He told them that back in chapter 45. And then he directs them there as they come. He settles them there. And then very diplomatically, very skillfully, he coaches his brothers at the end of chapter 46 and says, hey, I'm going to bring you before Pharaoh. And when he starts to ask you, what do you do? Tell him that you're shepherds. And, and ask him for the land of Goshen. And so Joseph begins to arrange the situation to use his influence to settle his family in the best of the land. Look at chapter 47, verse 6. Pharaoh said, the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Chapter 46, verse 11. Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt in the best of the land. This is a people blessed by God, but blessed for a purpose, blessed to be a blessing. Jacob's family as they settle there, they begin to be fruitful and multiply greatly. That's the first time in Genesis that the language shifts from a promise, I will bless you and I will multiply you and I will make you fruitful, to it's happening. It's actually happening right now. 47 verse 27, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. That should strike us. It's happening. God is actually fulfilling his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. In fact, that's the main point of this entire narrative. The Abrahamic covenant is no longer a distant, far-off promise. It's now an emerging reality. It's happening. And it's beginning in a shocking way, in a surprising time in a surprising place. They're not in the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to them. They're in Egypt. Why is that? It shows us God is able to accomplish his purpose for humanity despite all of our rebellion against him, despite all of our sin, despite all of our failure. When God says, this is my purpose for human beings, I will have a people who will represent my glory on earth and fill it and subdue it, God himself is able to bring that about. And that's what he's doing in this family. That, that should give you hope this morning. God is able to bring about what he purposes. Through Joseph, Jacob's family begins to rule and have dominion in Egypt. And during their second visit, Joseph had told his brothers, Chapter 45, verse 8, God has made me, listen to this language, how he describes his relationship to Pharaoh. God has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. That's the language of dominion. And Joseph's saying, I'm, it's happening. And now we see that play out when the whole family arrives. D during the last five years of the famine, Joseph skillfully acquired all of the money. Did you catch that? All the money all the livestock, all the labor, and all the land. That's incredible. He, he was once a slave. Remember, he arrived in Egypt as a slave, and here he enslaves all of Egypt. God has been with him at every turn. His life has not been without suffering, without heartache, without waiting, but God exalted him and gave him dominion 
over the land. That's not all. It's not just Joseph. His brothers, when they arrive in Egypt, they share in that dominion. The the narrative repeatedly draws our attention to the occupation of the brothers. They are shepherds. They keep livestock. That's what they do. That is repeated numerous times in the first verses of chapter 47. And did you catch what what Pharaoh said to Joseph? If you know any able men among your brothers, put them in charge of all my livestock. And then the narrative tells us how Joseph went on to acquire all the livestock in the entire country for Pharaoh. So so put two and two together. Who's in charge of all of the livestock in the entire land? Joseph's brothers. They arrive not at the bottom. They arrive as lords in the land, exercising dominion over the land, caring skillfully for Pharaoh's livestock. That's crazy. This is a divine blessing. How else can you explain in the midst of a famine when everyone else is desperately selling everything they have just to survive, Jacob's family arrives and gains possessions? That contrast between these two parts of the chapter is remarkable. Everybody else is losing everything they have. This family is gaining everything and rising in power and influence. That is divine blessing. And they are a blessing to the world through it. Joseph brings his father Jacob into the presence of Pharaoh. And twice the narrative tells us, verse 7, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And then when he leaves, verse 10, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. That's a surprising indication of the relationship between these two men. Even though Jacob is still here saying, few and evil are the days of my life. And they haven't been nearly as long as the days of my father's. He blesses Pharaoh. Twice. Hebrews 7 tells us it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So here's Jacob, who had received the blessings and the promises of God, standing before the mightiest man on earth, giving a blessing to him, blessing Pharaoh. And then his son goes on to save the world. I mean, literally save the world from famine. Joseph's actions if that rubbed you the wrong way at all, um, let me put it in context a little bit for you. When he, it, it sounds a little bit shocking, right? Like kind of some price gouging going on here. Sounds like the people take advantage during a hurricane, they just go buy all the water and then jack the prices up, right? It, it sounds a little exploitative. Like, is this okay what Joseph just did when he bought up everything and everybody and made them slaves? So To put it in in context, um, we certainly have a cultural lens that affects the way that we read this. This is not prescriptive, okay? This is not like, this is what all the governments on earth should do. (laughs) Acquire all of the land and enslave everybody, and and this is a good way to run a country. This is not prescriptive. It's just describing for us what happened at this unique time. Remember, Joseph is in a unique position, having actually had dreams from God to direct him in responding to this crisis. So, This is not supporting centralized government or central planning or socialism or anything like that. Second, pay attention to verse 25. How did the people feel about what happened? They don't cry out under some severe oppression or exploitative power. They cry out in verse 25, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. They are actually grateful. They see this as deliverance, rescue, salvation. And so Joseph, through his wisdom and his shrewdness, saves the world from death. 
And Jacob and his family are beginning to be a blessing to the whole world. The Abrahamic covenant is happening. But, as we know, Joseph dies. A new Pharaoh comes. He doesn't remember any of these things. And he ends up enslaving the people of Israel in Egypt. And they're slaves there for 400 years. Later, God would bring the nation of Israel into the promised land. And they would conquer. And they would multiply. And they'd have dominion. And then in their unbelief and idolatry, they would suffer the curses of their covenant unfaithfulness. And so, while we see glimpses that this is happening, it's repeatedly failing. God's people repeatedly fail. And yet God isn't done. That's what this story assures us of. God is committed to his purpose. His purpose has not changed. He will fill the earth with his glory. Not just like dumping out liquid glory everywhere. He's going to have people on the earth who know his glory. They're going to be human beings who love him and whose hearts are gripped by his glory. People who delight in him and walk in his ways and exercise dominion on this earth under him. That's what's going to happen. And so Joseph points us to the new Adam and the better Joseph, Jesus. He is the Descendant, the offspring, the seed of Abraham who would possess the gate of his enemies and bring the blessing of God to all the nations on earth. Paul tells us in no uncertain terms in Galatians 3.16 that that blessing, that promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob beginning to be fulfilled in Joseph was all about Jesus. Paul writes, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, but it does not say to his offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring, which is Christ. He is the one in whom all of this would begin to actually finally take hold on earth. And so with Jesus' arrival, his life and his death and his resurrection, he dealt the decisive blow to the foe, to Satan, He crushed the head of the serpent. We sang so many songs this morning about his victory. And I thought, so many Christians, it seems to me, these days live like one day Jesus is going to win. Like he came and he died for our sins. We go to heaven decades from now when we die. And someday in the future, he's going to win. But we're not really sure what he's doing right now. And we don't realize or live in the reality of the victory he accomplished when he came. He won. The battle's over. Look at what John 12, 31 says. Now is the judgment of this world. This this is Jesus speaking. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's talking about his death, and he's saying, when I die, that is when the ruler of this world, Satan, is cast out. Mark 3, 27. Jesus says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus came to bind the strong man and to plunder his house. And he came to do that in his incarnation and in his death and in his resurrection. The strong man has been bound and Jesus is now plundering his house, asserting his dominion on earth now. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Already, now, he is ruling and reigning. 
Don't miss this. Too many people think Jesus doesn't win and he doesn't rule until the end of history. Rather than seeing that just like Joseph, little by little, gradually rose in power, Jesus is already enthroned. And he is now bringing all of his enemies under his feet. Listen to Hebrews 2, 6 through 9. It has been testified somewhere, and then the author quotes Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him, that is man, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This is God's purpose for humanity. God means for the world to be in subjection under the feet of humans, crowned with glory and honor. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Do you see him? Do you see him in glory? The author is talking like, this is what the church knows. We see God's purpose for the world, for humanity is not over. It's fulfilled in Jesus. We don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him crowned in glory and honor, and we are captivated, and we know that's the story we live in. He is bringing all things into subjection under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He is now reigning. What's he doing now? Subjugating every last enemy until there is no more. And you know what Hebrews 15 says the last enemy is? Death. That means when he returns and he rises, brings us from the dead, that will be the end. Because at that point, all of the enemies will have already been put under his feet. So what does that have to do with the purpose of your life? the divine purpose for Tom Brady's life as a human being created by the God of the universe. Everything, everything. Jesus makes it possible for fallen humans like you and me to be restored to the image of God and the purpose of God. Listen to Doug Wilson. Jesus Christ is not the isolated perfect man. Jesus Christ is the new mankind. He's the new Adam. He's the new race of man. And all who are in him are included in this glorious new dominion. He's the head of a new race. So to be in Christ is to be part of that new race, living out God's purpose for humanity. The ruin created by the first Adam is being repaired in the person and the work of the second Adam. The world will be subdued under the preaching of the gospel. So are you in Christ? Are you trusting Christ? Are you clinging to Christ? Are you hoping in Christ for the satisfaction of all the longings of your heart? The purpose of human life, of your life, is found in Jesus, and the fulfillment of your purpose is bound to Jesus. The God-given purpose for your life and for Tom Brady's life is to live under the dominion of Jesus and 
to share in the dominion of Jesus. To live under the dominion of Jesus and to share in the dominion of Jesus. So Jesus commissioned his church, Matthew 28. Listen to how similar this sounds to the language of Genesis 1, 28. Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All rule and all dominion and all power, Jesus claims it for himself. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Sounds like be fruitful and multiply. Make disciples of all nations. Fill the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The story of Joseph finds its fulfillment in Jesus, the head of a new race, human beings who actually are empowered by the Spirit of God, given new hearts, new spiritual affections, reborn by the power of God to live out God's purpose right here on the earth today. Walk in it today. Live in it today. Jesus defeated your sin. He took away all of your guilt. He is conquering every last enemy, bringing all things under his feet. So you're called to live under his dominion. That means Turn from your rebellion against Jesus and submit your life to him as king. That's the question, the first question for us. Who's the king on the throne in your heart? Who rules as king in your heart? And are you relying on Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? Yes. For the promise of eternal life? Yes. And for every other promise that God offers to you? Are you relying on him alone? And are you learning by faith to obey everything Jesus commands? That's what the Great Commission says. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. Are you learning increasingly by faith to obey Jesus in every area of your life? Sharing in the dominion of Jesus begins by living under the dominion of Jesus. You and I have no power on our own, nothing. We're just like the brothers who show up in Egypt and go, wait, what? We're in charge of all this? Because of our elder brother, because of his power and his authority. And so what we have, we receive actually as an act of obedience first. And then you are called to share in the dominion of Jesus. I imagine that for the first audience of the book of Genesis, wandering around the desert when Moses delivered this to them, they're preparing to enter into the the promised land. This story would have been an encouragement to them. Look what God did with our forefathers. He kept his promise. That's meant to encourage them to believe, go into the promised land, take it, conquer the land. God will keep his promise to you. For us today, it motivates us to live on mission for the kingdom of God's Christ, his anointed king. It encourages us and motivates us to live on mission for the dominion of Christ. To live on mission is to live on purpose. That is your purpose as a human being, to live for the dominion of Jesus on earth. Look at Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. The father raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places already raised him and seated him, enthroned him in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion already and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put under his feet all things 
and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So just like with Joseph's brothers, do, do the math, put two and two together. All things are under Jesus' feet. The church is his body. All things are under our feet. He is our head. We are his body. And everything is under his feet. Everything is under the church. God means for his church to take dominion on earth, specifically through the preaching of the gospel. So taking dominion, how do you share in the dominion of Jesus? It it begins by just being faithful where God has placed you right now. This infuses everyday life with glorious purpose. Are are you a mom? Are you an accountant? Are you a teacher? Are you a, a student? Do that as unto the Lord. Do that under the rule and reign, the lordship of Jesus Christ first, and see that that place where God has put you is purposeful because that's the area God has entrusted with you to take dominion. Subdue that. Bring God's order there. Administer that like you're doing it as unto the Lord. Taking dominion includes being a faithful steward of what you have. Do you you have a home? Do you have an apartment? Do you have a car? Do you you have a bedroom if you're a child living at home? Take dominion right there. Just starts with taking dominion over whatever God has entrusted to you. When you see dominion as a matter of obedience to Jesus, I'm under his rule, I'm under his authority, then everyday living, working, lawn mowing, grocery shopping, parenting, budgeting, driving, it's all affected because it's all first a matter of my trust in and obedience to Jesus. And so it all matters because Jesus cares about all of it. He has power over all things and every name that can be named. And then Sharing in his dominion looks like telling the world that there's a king who is forgiving the sins and the rebellions of the world. That there is forgiveness in Jesus. That's the way he's bringing the world into submission under his feet. Listen to Doug Wilson again. The Great Commission is not the process of giving Jesus authority that he didn't have. The Great Commission is the process of declaring the authority that he already possesses and which he is already wielding. We're not out in the world trying to get out the vote like he's running for election and we just need Jesus to be more popular. We're not trying to persuade enough people to vote for Jesus. We're just informing them he's already king. Like it or not, you are either in rebellion against him or humble submission to him, dependence on him, trust in him. Come to him. He is merciful. He is gracious. He will abundantly pardon all who Trust in him. So that's the purpose of our lives, to live on mission for this king. And the hope we have is the earth really is going to be filled with worshipers. It's going to happen. It's going to happen in history. I want my life to be part of it. I want your life to be part of it. I want to be part of something together with you as a church building Declaring the gospel, strengthening the church of Christ, the head of all things. Listen to Psalm twenty-two, twenty-seven: All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. It's going to happen. 
Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The key word there is the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. People are going to know God all over the world. Malachi 1.11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He is going to do it. And Revelation 7, John says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb crying out with a loud voice. Try to time these things. (laughs) Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The impossible exaltation of Joseph, sold as a slave into Egypt, the exaltation of his family with him tells us God can do this. And the impossible resurrection of Jesus from the dead tells us God will do this. So I want to invite you, I want to charge you, live your life on purpose. Live your life on mission. We want every resident in the city of Sioux Falls to have repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every resident, 228,000 some people in Sioux Falls, 43,000 of them were at the Parade of Lights on Friday night. Maybe some of those were out, out of town guests. And I just think, some 67,000 people, if we just go by the the averages in our state, um, maybe 27% of our state is unchurched on a Sunday morning. Some 67,000 people don't attend church. We want every resident in Sioux Falls to hear and know there is a king appointed by God and assured to all by his resurrection from the dead We want to multiply missional communities. One for every thousand people in Sioux Falls. We'd love to have 230 missional communities in this city because all things belong to our Savior and our Lord. And we want the world to know the life that comes from Jesus and living in union with him. And globally, we pray and we think and we give globally. There are three billion people on earth who still live in places where they don't have any access to the gospel. And so as a church, we have dreams and and visions of sending out missionaries and church planters and teams of people to the unreached because Jesus is taking dominion through the preaching of the gospel and the planting of churches. He's the head, the church is his body, and all things are under his feet. Let me end with this quote from B.B. Warfield. He writes... Through all the years, one increasing purpose runs. One increasing purpose. The kingdoms of the earth become ever more and more the kingdom of our God and his Christ. That's Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. The process may be slow. 
the progress may appear to our impatient eyes to lag, but it is God who is building, and under his hands the structure rises as steadily as it does slowly, and in due time the capstone shall be set into its place, and to our astonished eyes shall be revealed nothing less than a saved world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to see, along with the author of Hebrews, we do not yet see all things in subjection to you, but we see you enthroned and crowned with glory and honor. We see you who tasted death for all so that we no longer live in the fear of death. We see you glorious and we love you. Give us eyes to see you. Give us eyes this week as we're running errands and putting gas in the car and clocking in at work and changing diapers and doing whatever it is that you've set before our hands to do. Let us see Jesus as glorious as we're doing those things so that we might do them as unto the Lord, our great God and Savior. And conquer every rebel thought in us and every unbelieving attitude in us and in those around us. And Jesus, save many, many more from this city. Multiply gospel conversations and cause churches to be planted across this city. This city has room for dozens more churches as more and more people come to worship you. And this world will be filled with the knowledge of your glory. May our lives be part of that story for our joy and for your glory. Amen.